Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Learn, and I'm joined as normal by Carrie Smith. Carrie, say hi. Hi, Carter. <laughs> um, today, hi, we're Carter. very excited to get to talk to um, Maggie Oliver. Maggie is the ex-Greater Manchester police detective who sacrificed her career to speak about publicly. Uh, about the failures of the authorities to deal with the ongoing gangs, uh, grooming gangs in the UK, in particular the Rochdale grooming scandal. Um, she has since written her own book called Survivors about the journey and how it almost destroyed her. After working for uh, four years as a program consultant on a BAFTA award-winning drama called Three Girls, she has recently set up a charity called the Maggie Oliver Foundation to provide support to survivors of sexual abuse and help them move on with their lives. So she continues to fight for justice and to give a voice to those who would otherwise go unheard. You can you can follow her on Facebook by looking up Maggie Oliver UK. Her Twitter is Maggie Oliver UK. Her website is the MaggieOliverFoundation.com, and we will put links to all of her social media and stuff in the in the notes below. Um, Maggie, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to Unsafe Space. Thanks for um, inviting me on the show, Carter and um, Kerry. It's a bit surreal to be here in these weird times, but um, I'm very grateful to be here. Well, we're super grateful to have you. Um, I know it, this is a, it's a heavy subject to talk about, but it's an important one. I know many of our, our listeners are in the U.S., and they've vaguely heard, maybe some of them have heard about um, the Rotherham child abuse uh, scandal where I think an estimated 1,400 girls between the ages of 11 and 16 were victims of child sexual abuse. Uh, and we hear about it from various other towns across the UK. But one of the most famous, one of the other most famous or infamous cases, uh, actually, you were involved in both Operation Augusta and Operation Span as a detective. Maybe, maybe we can step back and have you talk to us a little bit about Maybe start with Operation Augusta, because that was the first one, and that was, um, you know, it starts with this story of this young girl, Victoria, which is just a heartbreaking story. Can you maybe explain to people, you know, how you got involved in that investigation and, and how that unfolded? Yeah, well, um, I was in, Greater Man in, in GMP, Greater Manchester Police, and back in 2000 and was 2004 um, I received a, a, a call and I was asked to join a, a small team initially three officers and a DI a detective inspector um, we'd had um, a young girl called Victoria Agolia who had been living in Rochdale and she had been um, sexually abused, groomed and sexually abused by a gang of men. But she had died of an overdose. Um, she'd been given um, an overdose of drugs by one of the abusers. Now, I didn't work on the, on Victoria's death, but alongside that, at the same time, um, in the UK, there was a, a documentary program that had been following a team of social workers in South Yorkshire, in Keithley. And the, the documentary team had uncovered this problem where young white children were being groomed and uh, sexually abused by gangs of predominantly Pakistani men. Now, those two things occurred at more or less the same time. So I was approached um, and we were asked to look at whether we had a similar problem in and around Manchester City Centre, which isn't far from Rochdale, all falls within... Greater Manchester Police 
responsibility. Um, at that time, Carter, I had never heard of on-street grooming. It was something that I had never come across. Um, but very quickly, um, within the space of a couple of weeks, really, every social worker that um, we went that I went to speak to said, basically, thank God, we have had this problem for a long time and the police don't want to do anything about it. And, and I was pretty shocked, to be honest. Um, I've got four kids of my own. I joined the police late. Um, child protection for me is one of the most important jobs that a police officer can do. And to find out that we had all these children um, being abused on a pretty much on an industrial scale and the police weren't doing anything, I was completely shocked. But what we found was that the, the children, most on Operation Augusta, most of the children were in the care of social services, so they were living in children's homes. And what was happening was these child protection units in those days only dealt with abuse that was by somebody who had care, custody or control of the child they were abusing. The men who were abusing these children didn't have care, custody or control, so they were strangers. So child protection units didn't want to deal with this crime. The ID that would deal with stranger rape wasn't equipped to deal with child um, with, with with joint investigations with child abuse. So the the result was that nobody was dealing with this abuse. So within the space of a few weeks, we had um, well over two dozen children that we knew would be, and that was the tip of the iceberg. By the time we had put together um, a report. We had um, over 100 men on a database that we knew were abusing these children. And wow. I, yeah, it was just horrific. And But we were told we weren't to speak to these children because we had insufficient resources. We didn't have the officers to investigate. Um, but So myself and another colleague who, who was on that job with me, we went to the, the highest level in, in GMP. So... Um, it, it was called the Force Tasking and Coordinating Group. So we, we wrote a report which set out the problem that we had. I took that report to the head of uh, serious crime in GMP, so the highest level that you could go to. And we made a case for proper resources to be put into this case. And he took the report away. In that report, um, the, the, the very first page, we decided to put the photograph of Victoria and a letter that had been written by a child. Um, it turned out not to have been Victoria, but basically a child saying, you know, I am being raped. I, um, I've done things that I wish I'd never done. It, it was just a desperate, it was a heartbreaking cry for help. And for Victoria, it was too late because she was already dead. Um, but what we wanted, what I absolutely wanted as a mum with four children, I wanted the officers at the top to see that by not addressing this problem, the consequences were that another child would die or many more children would die. So that report went to the, the, top, uh, the top bosses and they agreed to resource Operation Augusta with a full team from the major incident team. Um, so all the information would go onto a, a particular database, a computer system called HOMES, 
which means that the Home Office large major inquiry team, it will be properly staffed, it will be run by experienced detectives, and we would put these men away. And I was on the major incident team by this time. Um, so, you know, we were over the moon that um, something was going to be done about this. Um, but then at the same time, my husband, who I'd been with since I was 20, um, he was terminally ill with bowel cancer. And um, in March 2005, uh, towards the end of March, I went off Operation Augusta. Um, at the time, um, at which this was all going on the database, it had been accepted as a full uh, major incident. We knew what was going on. We knew who the children were. We knew who many of the perpetrators were. And I went off with a kind of a, kind of a, you know, a content, I think, that these men were finally going to be sent to prison. Um, my husband died in the July um, and I came back to work and I was in complete and utter shock that Operation Augusta had just died a death. It was no longer in existence. Nobody had been charged. The men were left walking the streets. The kids had been cast to the wind and left to their own devices and wherever I turned I, I couldn't get answers so it, it, it stayed with me forever it's never left me because no. those men paedophiles don't suddenly stop abusing children they have to be stopped and but I, I was powerless to do anything you know um, there was a, a gap in my knowledge I didn't have paperwork to back up what I was saying. Um, the job had been buried, and, and I couldn't get any answers. But it, it, it stayed with me, you know? Now, maybe we should explain, maybe can you just explain to some people what um, the various organizations involved are? Because I think some people hear, like, the crisis intervention team, and they hear different departments of uh, the GMP. Can you just describe what the organizations are that are involved and what their roles are supposed to be in cases like this? Yeah, well, in, in Operation Augusta, we really just have the police, so Greater Manchester Police. We have the CPS, which is the Crown Prosecution Service, but they weren't involved in Augusta because we never went to charging stages and social services were responsible for the children that were being abused um, because... On Operation Augusta, the children were all, I think they were all in the living in children's homes. So they were very, very vulnerable children to start with. And do, do you know in America what grooming is? How, you know, do you have the same, I don't know if you have the same problems over there. We've learned about it from the UK. So, but it might be good for you to explain to people what you mean when you say grooming. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned the drama Three Girls, which I was eventually the, I worked on for four years as the program consultant. And that does a really, it, it clearly shows what grooming is. But basically what it is, is a, um, a, a somebody will, will befriend a child. And, and on Augusta, the way it was happening was a younger boy, that the kids were between the age of 11 and 14, 15, um, a younger young man, so maybe 18, 19, would wait outside uh, the children's home, sometimes pick the kids up. They would take them for a drive in the car. They'd buy them a bit of jewellery. They'd get them some alcohol. And 
initially it was like a boyfriend but then what would happen is that boy would would take the child for to to an address for instance um there were many of the addresses where these children were taken were um rooms above takeaways we we have a street in manchester called the curry mile and it's predominantly indian restaurants and takeaways and much of the abuse was happening in um above takeaways there was one house for instance that one of the girls who was an adult she she was no longer being abused but she took me and showed me a house where she said that children were being taken and you know there'd be a maybe 10 or 15 men in that house one child would be taken there and all those men would have sex with her um there was another occasion where that same um young woman she was 18 by this time she took me on a on a drive round of um in in the car and as we were driving down a main road in manchester she suddenly pointed to a car across the road um and a man walked out of the building to get in the car and and she slid down in the front of my car um and said that was one of the men who was at the sex parties and i mean i'm i'm whizzing through this you will have to somebody yes. have to read my book to get the detail but it i went back to the police station um i did a a check on that particular car registration and that came back um it was a, a serving police officer so this wasn't just uh. um, no, and actually i'm saying that because the recent um review that has been made public has publicly acknowledged the truth of that and that that officer was subsequently required to resign but they've said in the report it was nothing to do with the abuse which i find highly um questionable there there are many things that um you know in in an hour i'm never going to be able to get through it but these were failures of the most monumental uh, you know on 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 a monumental scale and 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 in the uk now um it's it's widely known that whilst i was working on augusta and there was the problem in south yorkshire in keithley we also had problems you know in rotherham in telford in oxford in huddersfield all around the country but at that point in time um it was a hidden crime and the children themselves were being they, they were just being left left to be abused really it was as though nobody cared that um you know the the words that are banded around in the UK are that they were making a lifestyle choice or that they were bad kids they were child prostitutes well no they weren't these were children and these were children that the police and the social services and the authorities had an absolute duty to protect you know when i joined the police in line with every single police officer you swear what is called an oath of attestation and you promise that you will uphold the law that you will um act with integrity you will uphold fundamental human rights you you discharge your duties according to the law and and every single one of those promises that i had made was not being done and and it right. just I couldn't square the circle in my head but um I I was in a bad way you know I'd lost my husband I'd got four kids there was a gap in my knowledge there was I didn't have any documentary evidence every door I went on within the police um everybody said no we had insufficient evidence there was nothing you know the girls wouldn't speak to us I knew that was a lie 
um, you know, and and with this new, this recent report, it's taken me 15 years to get this publicly acknowledged that I was telling the truth. And that doesn't make me feel great. The, the question I always ask is, what is the cost of 15 years of those lies? You know, those men, 100 men, that, and that's what the report talks about. There were many, many more than that. Those hundred men for 15 years have been allowed to continue to abuse generations of other children. That is unforgivable. And and I am now, you know, obviously I've not even mentioned Operation Span yet, but right. I am now fighting for those officers who closed down Operation Augusta to be held legally accountable, to go to prison, to lose their pensions. They should never sleep in their beds again because what they did is unforgivable and you know they've wriggled and they've lied and they've concealed the truth and they pretended it didn't happen the report says that they closed that job down because they wouldn't put resources into it well the question i always say is you know it, to the chief constables if this was your daughter this was your 12 year old daughter is that a lifestyle choice is that right how can you turn away from that when it's your duty to protect those children? So you can hear, I know you can hear in my voice how much it still upsets me. And, well, and I, I it should because I, I, Maggie, that I, I watched that press conference recently in January. And on the one hand, you were vindicated, right? Because they admitted that, yes, everything Maggie Oliver has been saying is true. But on the other hand, there was no one actually held accountable. No one was held accountable. It was just this nebulous, like, well, there were there were failures. It wasn't properly funded. Like, this happened. It was all passive language with zero accountability for any of the people that actually made the decisions. And it, honestly, I came away from the press conference angry. That, you know what, I, I am still incandescent with rage, and, and I will not let this go. You know, I mean, there's lots going on behind the scenes. We've got a case at the Supreme Court. Which, you know, this has never left my life. It's taken over my life. And I'm very damaged. You know, I, I am, I'll never get over this. But by having at least a public acknowledgement that I'm, you know, I was written off as a woman who had lost the plot. I became too emotionally involved. You know, like misogynistic comments that, you know, these kids really, you know, it's really difficult to protect them. Well, that is not good enough. You know, it is not good enough. And I didn't lose the plot and I didn't become too emotionally involved. I cared. And actually, everybody should care about this because it is, it destroys lives. And, you know, the, the journey I have carried on with since I left the police has actually educated me even more in a way that I wish I'd never been educated because I get messages from people every day um, telling me how they are still being failed. GM, Greater Manchester Police, as a result of that review, have been forced to reopen Operation Augusta now. It's not called Operation Augusta anymore. It's called Operation Green Jacket. Well, I will tell your listeners that I am even being contacted now by, by survivors who were failed in 2005 who are still being treated disgracefully by the police, even now. One of those children, for instance, she, she was raped repeatedly uh, as a child on Operation Augusta. She, she had a termination. She was talking to the police, and they just binned her. 
as though she'd never spoken to us. Do you know that after 15 years, despite all this press, despite them saying, well, lessons have been learned, and this was 15 years ago, things have changed. Well, they have not, because one of those girls, the very first contact she got from GMP after 15 years was a phone call to say, we're going to come and speak to you in your canteen at work. You know, it's just horrendous. There is another child that um, I, I... I've never met these girls, but I have now because they have got in touch with me. Another child had put, she's a young woman now, but she had put um, a a, a desperate plea on social media saying, where are you? You know, we've had all this press conference. We've had all this spotlight saying how fantastic you are. She said, I am sitting here six weeks after this press conference and you have still never been in touch with me. I am waiting for a, a knock on the door you know, where are you now? So words are so easy. I will not let this drop because they're still trotting out platitudes about how things have changed and how, you know, lessons have been learned. And this was 15 years ago. Well, actually, no, things haven't changed. They haven't changed enough. Lessons haven't been. So it's still, it's a very current issue still. I have a question, Maggie, because I, um, I'm like a lot of Americans. Carter mentioned at the beginning we're starting to learn about some of these things, but I'll add the caveat that um, not all Americans, because it's not in our mainstream news, and uh, there's a significant portion of people who still haven't heard about these cases, and I only became aware of them. Um, a year or two ago, I forget which one, it might have been Telford, one of the ones I started reading about the stories. And um, one of, I'm hearing you say that some of the failures were, it seems like a part, like some corrupt police officers, but also uh, a lack of responsibility or like organization on whose job it was to make sure these girls didn't fall through the cracks. But another thing that I read in some of these reports was that some of the towns that did in independent studies came to the conclusion that there were that the police were afraid of being called racist. Was that I think was that, that is, present there in Manchester? Or? Um, obviously, I've, I've thought about this many, many times over the years, and I do think that that is one element of it. Um, I don't think it is just that. I think. The ethnicity of the offenders and and the the children is one aspect. I also feel that it really was because they didn't want to put the resources in. You know, these kids actually didn't really matter. You know, they were from difficult backgrounds. They weren't the kids of the chief constables and the, you know, um, so they didn't really matter. And the children themselves were, by the time they realised or by the time these children realize they are being sexually abused, that they're being raped, they are a little bit older and they don't believe that they are going to be protected. So they don't go knocking on the doors of the police. But I also really, truly believe that this is um, about attitudes. And, you know, everything that's been going on recently, you know, with, with Jeffrey Epstein, with Harvey Weinstein, you know, um, it's about power and it's about an underclass and it's about 
them being children that really don't have a voice. You know, they are the forgotten children in many ways. And you know that the the people at the top of these organizations want to protect the organization at any cost. Um, these children are disposable. Um, and rather than step up to the mark and do something about it, I always say it's willful blindness. It wasn't that they didn't know. They knew full well what was going on. But what actually shocks me to this day is that, that I have ended up in this position because I have spoken out. But in the same way as with Jeffrey Epstein, you know, you look at all the these islands and all the staff and everybody who was taking these children there, they all knew what was going on. There were many people, every police force knew that this was going on. So why did it fall to me to speak out? Where were all the other people horrified about it? This, you know, it's not a hidden crime anymore. But in those days, I didn't know about it, but many people did. And nobody wanted to take control of it and do something about it until they were forced to do something about it. And um, so, yes, I feel that the ethnicity is a part of it because no, they didn't want to be accused of being Islamophobic. And strangely enough, on Augusta, when um, what was happening in the UK was that police forces were being kind of um, graded on how successful they were in solving acquisitive crime. So burglaries, robberies, theft from motor vehicle, they were high priority response jobs. So if somebody was having the car broken into and a, a radio stolen, you'd get you know half a dozen police vans there because it was a tick in a box and a, the police force were getting resourced depending on how well they solved those crimes. If you were a child of 13 getting raped on a daily basis, you weren't be, you know, solving that wouldn't be reflected on, on the, they were called performance indicators. So they didn't get ticks in the box. Wow. So the people wow. at the top Jeez. didn't give a shit. All they wanted was for ticks in the boxes because that's how they got the funding. That's how they got the bonuses. In, back in that day, I didn't know that. But now I do know that. And, and furthermore, um, again, and I do mention this in my book, and I didn't know it at the time, but in 2008, according to a former um, prosecutor who, who made this public about three years ago, four years ago, in 2008, the, the Home Office, so the government, sent out a circular to every police force in the UK telling them they must not investigate these grooming gangs because the children were making a choice to be raped by these men. Now, so all these factors feed into that. Um, and for me, it's just a question of right and wrong, good and bad. You don't have to be a police officer to know that this is just so wrong that we, we have an absolute obligation to deal with it, you know, and um, I mean, I've only spoken about Augusta and, you know, I went back to my normal job eventually and I tried to pick up the pieces. I worked on murders. I didn't work in child protection. So I, I mainly worked on, um, on gang related murders. So shootings and kidnappings. I did witness protection work. It was, you know, the, the most serious crime in GMP, major crime. Um, 
I, I wasn't in child protection, but I always had a, my skills have always been with vulnerable people. You know, that that is what my natural, I, I am quite empathetic and I can be trusted. And so that was where my skills lay. And, you know, I carried on with my own work um, in the major incident team until in 2010, um, I received a call out just out of the blue and was asked to join a, another job, which actually turned out to be almost identical to Operation Augusta. And this second job was in Rochdale and it became known as Operation Spam. Um, when I was approached, um, I was asked, first of all, two things. What had happened, uh, the police had done a routine property review of the exhibit system. And in one of the freezers, they'd actually found a fetus um, which had been seized unlawfully. The, the little girl that had been taken off had been just 13. Um, she had been um, sexually abused, raped by multiple men, one of whom who had got her pregnant. But the family, the mum and the child, were not aware that the police had even got this fetus. So I was approached and said, look, we have got this job. Um, it, it was actually identical to Operation Augusta. But at the centre of this job, we had this child whose fetus we had, who had been abused. And we also had her sister who had been arrested on suspicion of being a madam um, at the age of 15, even though she had been raped by over two dozen men and um, it was acknowledged by the by the bosses that that shouldn't have happened so I was asked to join Operation Span and um, I refused I said um, no I, I, I'm not going back to that place um, because Augusta was still very raw in me um, but I was given documents and cast iron guarantees that there would never be a repeat of what had happened on Operation Augusta. Um, and on that basis, I eventually agreed to join Operation Span to my uh, probably everlasting regret to the end of my I was going to ask, do you regret that? Because you've done a lot of good by having been involved in Operation Span. But I mean, one of the recurring themes in your book is how time and time again, the police undermine your ability to do your job, destroy the relationship between the, of trust between the, the police and the victims, and just turn a blind eye. It's, it's, the, the, the amount of betrayal uh, is, is, fast, is, is disturbing um, to me. I mean, none of those things they promised you happened. They, they promised no, to treat them like victims. They didn't. They promised, like they, all these things they promised you, they just lied again. And, and that is what will never leave me. You know, um, in, in many ways, this is, it's destroyed me in many ways, you know. But um, I, I feel that I was used, you know. I feel that the children were used, that they are seen as a commodity. Um, and when they're no longer useful, they, they just cast them aside in the way that they did. You know, the, the, the two girls that I just mentioned, they, they were represented in three girls. Uh, they were Amber and Ruby. Well... Those, you know, they were used. Amber was, you know, pulled in by me on absolute cast iron guarantees that if she told me 
on behalf of GMP what had happened that we would support her through right through to, to the court date. But what subsequently happened was after seven months of her telling us everything, going to you know identification parades, pointing out locations, giving hours of interviews, actually after the top lawyer in the CPS, in the Crown Prosecution Service, had said, if this child tells us what has happened, we promise that she will be treated as a victim, that she will be supported through the system. Not only did they drop her as a witness, as a victim, because she blew that job out of the water and they didn't want it to grow to that magnitude. So what they did, they decided that they were not going to use her in court. That's actually why I walked off the job. But not only were they not going to use her, and I'm quoting, that's what they said right. to me, um, but also further down the road when the barrister got her head around what had actually happened and what this child's evidence actually was, the only way to run that trial was then with her evidence. And in order to enter her evidence into the trial, she had to be added onto the charge sheet, onto the indictment, as one of the gang of paedophiles. Now, that alone, it's complicated, but that alone is unlawful. And it was done in secret. So in the UK, you are innocent until proven guilty. And before you can go to court, everything you say, it has to be under caution. So you have to be arrested and cautioned. You're entitled to legal advice and you're entitled to a trial. That is the basis on which the British justice system is built. For that child, because it was, a, and I quote again, a tactical option, the only way to get her evidence into court would be if she was a victim, as she was, but because they dumped her, you know, two months before the trial, there is no way you can bring her back into that case as a victim. The only other way to enter her evidence into court is if she is one of the offenders. So as a tactical option, they added her onto the indictment in secret. Every single thing that was used against her was what she told me on video interviews as a victim that had been rubber stamped by the top lawyer in the CPS. And, and it, she wasn't that, even made aware, right? She didn't even know she was uh, no, listed. No. Yeah. And, when I, and when I resigned, I was forbidden from speaking to these this family. But after I resigned, wow. I went back to tell them what had happened. And when I went back, she still didn't know what had been said about her. None of her family knew. And what the the system was then trying to do was to say because this child had been named as a paedophile even though she was a, a, a victim of multiple dozens of rapes because she had been named as a paedophile the social services and the police were trying to take her children away from her in the family courts because they said she was a danger to her own children so I then took her to a solicitor and I worked with the solicitor and eventually that was thrown out and she kept her children but that was all being done in secret behind the scenes and and I will never get over that you know that the, the system
can do something like that. It's destroyed my trust in the whole judicial process because I have learned that if it, I was told actually by a senior officer when I kicked up a sting, Maggie, calm down. Listen, this is just a game. What are these children ever going to contribute to society? They should have been drowned at birth. And, oh and I God. swear, said to me. So I'll never let go of this. And I am fighting to this day to have those held accountable who have made those decisions, unlawful decisions. They are guilty of neglect and misconduct in a public office because this is unlawful. But what it's done to me is it's changed me forever. You know, it's kind of, I don't trust the establishment. You know, I lost my home. It made me ill. Um, I was threatened with being arrested. I thought I'd go to prison. But I was telling the truth. And some things, there are some things in life that, you know, you just have to, you just have to, you just have to do. And, you know, I've got four children and, and and I've said it in my book, but I didn't, I knew this would eventually come out. Um, but I thought it might take many years. And what I didn't want is for my children to, when I'm, you know, not here anymore, for my kids to put the telly on and hear all about the Rochdale grooming scandal and how, disgracefully how despicably the police had acted and for the kids to say well you know my mum worked on that job and why did she not say anything so I just wanted to know that I had told the truth and I had given these uh, very vulnerable children a voice I didn't think it would go where it's gone um, but it, it it was the truth and I wished I'd never been put in that position but I'm glad that being in that position, I did find the, I, I did find the strength to to stand up. But it it was two, it was the worst two years of my life. Yeah. Easily. Well, yeah. I mean, so many Maggie, kids are better off your... because you're stood up. So go ahead, Carrie. Yeah. I was going to ask what what has been because you mentioned um, being threatened with arrest and some of the consequences of you talking about this, what has the reception overall been towards your book in the press? Or, You know what? Um, I have had nothing but support from the public because the public feel the same way as I do. The only people who haven't have been those who should know better. So I am... You know, the, the truth is the truth. And, and however difficult that truth is, I really believe that without the truth, we have nothing. Um, and in order, I, I want, you know what I wanted? I just wanted an acknowledgement that, that they'd made mistakes, that they shouldn't. But it took 15 years. I worked with the review team for Operation Augusta. This is just part one. Part two will look at Operation Span. You know, I spent two years speaking to the review team. Um, I never expected for one minute that report would come out in the in the way it did. Um, and for that, I am eternally grateful um, because it has once and for all um, 
made a nonsense of, of, you know, the police saying that basically I made it up, that I'm a liar, that I became too emotionally involved. You know, that has been put to bed once and for all. But the public actually always knew that I was telling the truth. Um, and and I, I often wonder, it's really only writing my own, it's only since I wrote my book, that I've opened the lid on some of my own feelings, actually. I feel that um, I couldn't acknowledge what they've done to me. Um, and I still find it really quite, um, oh, it's, it's just very, it churns me up. It, it make, it, 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 it's almost destroyed me. And I yeah. think that's why I, have focused on fighting for the girls themselves because I, you know, if, if you're bullied, um, I, I'm not talking about me, but if anybody's bullied or it's actually very hard to fight for yourself, um, I think it's easier to fight for others. So I didn't want people saying that I was a police officer who would, you know, I was um, a bitter and twisted ex-police officer because that was not what was driving me. It was outrage about thousands and thousands of kids being failed like this around the country and I have fought to give them a voice and now that my voice has educated the country on what has been going on and they can no longer pretend that it doesn't so that probably will be my legacy really that um and it's kind of the only thing that makes this seem as though it's been worthwhile um yeah. But I wouldn't have chosen it. I loved my job and I was good at my job. You know, I ended up, I lost my home and I lost my career. I, lo I You know, I walked away, but I walked away. I spent 18 months before I walked away going, to, first of all, to every rank within Greater Manchester Police, right up to the chief constable who wouldn't even meet me. And then I went to the home office. I went to the... Independent Police Complaints Commission. I went to the Children's Commissioner. I went to the Home Office Select Committee. Um, I, I went anywhere I could think of. I went. My union, you know, turned their back on me. Nobody wanted to hear. And, you know, I was threatened verbally with, you know, a, a wagging finger. You be very, very careful what you do with this. You know, you've signed. It's like the Official Secrets Act. You know, any information you've got, you have learned because you are a police officer, you know, data protection, and you mustn't spread that. That was repeated in writing. I collapsed at work. My last day at work, I ended up unconscious on the floor. Um, they, you know, senior officers turned up trying to take my phone away from me. They told me I mustn't speak to people. They tried to isolate me. I felt powerless. I didn't know where to turn. But what I did know, and I never, I never doubted it, I knew this was wrong. Um, and whoever said to me, you know, it's just the way of the world, these kids, kids are making a lifestyle choice. No, they're not. A 12-year-old can't choose to be raped by dozens of 50- and 60-year-old men. That is what a police officer's job is, to protect those children. And that is my duty. So whichever way I turned, but it made me ill. It, it it really yeah, yeah. so i'm sorry I mean, to go off but. no no i it should make you ill um 
I mean, there's so much here to unpack. Just the the level of sophistication of the grooming gangs was, um, you know, that they, they knew that they needed to isolate girls um, so that they wouldn't have corroborating evidence. They had, like, a whole system for doing this. Um, and to hear, to see, um, one of the things that strikes me about your book is time and time again, uh, you just, you want someone to treat these girls as if they are victims and children. And you're the, I mean, it basically you and I guess Sarah uh, Robotham, like there's very few people that view these children as children and victims. Time and time again, it's this kind of, uh, you know, we don't think in the U.S. in terms of class quite as much as in Europe, but I don't have a better word to describe it. It's almost like these girls are this untouchable class and no one's supposed to care about them and no one's supposed to, uh, like, you're not supposed to, care about justice for them and if you do you're the problem um and honestly it, it's hard to read i mean i couldn't even watch the three girls documentary because it was hard or um uh, uh show because it was very hard uh hard to watch but i don't i can't imagine how betrayed i mean obviously you feel very betrayed but for like amber for example i have no or, or ruby i don't have any idea how you can i mean how they would even want to have anything to do with any police officer ever about anything again. They have been burned. Every time they've been promised something, they have been thrown under the bus and attacked by the very system that's supposed to be protecting them. It's really, it's infuriating. I don't know what, there's a question in there. I'm just, I'm, you're getting me riled up about it. You know, I, I had, um, I mean, Amber, and they're like my, they are like my children now. You know, I, I am, it was, it was actually Amber that, that brought me on this journey. It, but she is an example of many. But, you know, when you get to know somebody and they put their trust in you and you, you know what's been done to them and you, it's a privilege when they put that trust in you and you don't walk away from it because you change your mind or because it's difficult to do. That is unacceptable. We have the evidence. And, you know, for a police officer, it is your duty to gather the evidence. Do you know that in relation to Amber, not one of the rapes against her was ever recorded, and it still is not to this day. In relation to Ruby, the, the guy who got her pregnant, we had a fetus. We had, because I did get her permission. Her mum couldn't have helped enough. We had DNA. We knew who was the man who got her pregnant. Do you know that even that man was not charged with rape? He was out well. of people with sexual activity with a child he was out of prison in less than three years and do you know that just before Christmas she was walking around the supermarket in Rochdale which is where they still live and she walked around the end of an aisle straight into that man who got her pregnant and he's back in Rochdale he was walking around the supermarket in unsupervised contact with another child I have referred that to the safeguarding board and they don't want to know because he's no longer on license and because he was not charged with rape, nor is he on the sex offenders register. So the, these layers, these failures go so deep that that's why I can't walk away because of the knowledge I now have. These decisions have consequences and the consequences are that those men are not punished for what they have done. My son would go to prison for 25 years if he got a 12-year-old pregnant. Why was that not man not charged with rape? And the authorities 
persist in saying that Operation Span and the trial was a great job. Well, no, it wasn't. It was a disgusting job. And most of those men were charged with trafficking. And they were charged with trafficking because it's an easier offence to prove. Not because they weren't guilty of dozens of rapes. They have had millions of pounds in taxpayers' money now trying to fight extradition back to Pakistan. Those kids have to beg and plead for legal aid to try and get a little bit of compensation. And all those things are why I've set up my own foundation, because I am contacted by many, many desperate people who have nowhere to turn. Even last night, even last night, I was contacted by a young girl who is 21 years old. She is experiencing the same failures from the police even now she made a complaint of rape the police went back they went to her place of work they went to her friends they went to where she was living to say that she was telling lies you know the the, the pain and the damage that these actions cause are hidden and my mission if you like is to spread that truth because i will not let them hide it you know, as long as I um, have a, a public voice, I can prove all these things. You know, we have got an action going on in the Supreme Court. I am in um, consultation. I am working with other lawyers to try to hold these senior officers to account for their failures. But things like that are not easily, um, they're not easy to do because... The courts won't fund those kind of actions. You can't get legal aid to take that out. So I can't take that kind of action out myself because I haven't got any money. So they're protected. And as soon as there's a little whiff of something like this, these senior officers are out of the door. They get the pensions and they're home and dry. And those are the kind of consequences that I want to be brought against those who have knowingly failed in their duty to protect generations of kids so it, it's kind of not finished but there are a lot of people now who know what's going on um and i guess it still continues i don't know how anyone can really i mean you said this before but that you've kind of lost your faith in the system i don't know how anyone can hear these stories and read your book and have really any faith in the system at all um what can ordinary people do like if you're a uk resident and or in, in rochdale and you care about this what power does anyone have to penetrate this kind of murky web of corruption that is the greater manchester police well there are things going on behind the scenes myself and a few ex-colleagues um andy burnham is the mayor of manchester and he commissioned this review now, he is also the police and crime commissioner. It is his job to hold Greater Manchester Police to account. Myself and three other ex-police officers took to him a list of examples of gross criminal neglect against senior officers in GMP. 18 months ago, he is still to act on any of those. He is in a position where he should be holding GMP to account. We are in, the, well, before all this madness, you know, we had been to see our local MP. We're hoping to have a meeting. It, it was arranged with the Home Secretary. 
these are the kind of actions that we are trying to take. Um, but there is no, I'm, I'm one of the, I don't know if you're aware that there is a national um, abuse inquiry going on in the UK at the moment. Are you, are you aware of that? Uh, I'm aware that it exists, but I don't know any details about it. I've heard about it. Uh, there's been lots of different strands. So there was one strand that looked at the Catholic Church, another mm -hmm. one that looked at Rochdale and Cyril Smith and, and how he and um, politicians and people in high places abuse children in Rochdale. Um, the next strand is what's called the Organised Networks strand. And these grooming gangs are organised networks because they are the next whereas when i first was um in the police i went to moss side and the gangs were the gun gangs you know may, many like afro-caribbean you know all really the gangs were about dealing drugs and um well these these gangs are now the the recognized as the new organized uh, criminal gangs and what i always say is that whereas with um, with drugs, you know, a gang will sell drugs, and and when they're sold, they're sold. It's gone. You have to get another supply. With these children, they are a commodity that you sell again and again and again. And these men use them like a commodity. They use them like drugs, and they sell them, you know, repeatedly. And when these, the, you know, when one. When one group of girls moves into an age where they're no longer as attractive, so maybe when they get to 15, 16, that they, they disappear and the next strand comes in. So they've got an, a network that is a repeating supply. There's always the demand. The supply is brought in with younger and younger children. And unless the police and the authorities deal with this properly, we will never get on top of it. But... You know, there was a case last week um, that was had gone to the courts of uh, justice, um, brought by the Centre for Women's Justice, Harriet Wistrich, who I am working with on the case in uh, the Supreme Court. But it was brought because um, the CPS are now only charging, or it, they are only charging the easiest of rapes to prosecute because they are being kind of target-driven, if you like, a bit like I was saying about the police. Right. And so on that basis, these gangs know that it's highly unlikely that they will be taken to court for abusing these children because it's a difficult case to investigate um, and it's a difficult case to prosecute. So they are very sophisticated in choosing victims that they know are the most vulnerable, the least likely to be believed, and the least likely to go to the police because they don't trust them. So it, it really does need commitment to, to change this. How about, what's the, um, I saw you holding up your book a second ago, but Carter was talking, so I don't know if people got to see it. Would you mind showing people that. Uh, it's called Survivors Fighting for Justice. Yeah. And um, what kind of help, what What are you guys doing with your foundation? What kind of help could people offer you there? I've actually got got that. It's called, the, uh, can you see that, the, the Maggie Oliver Foundation. Um, I mean, with, with all this coronavirus, um, we, we've 
what 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 we've done for the past year um i set up my own foundation which is that the, the line underneath is transforming pain into power what we what i want to do is to show survivors of uh, sexual abuse that the abuse doesn't have to define their whole life um we want to give them hope that you know they can move on from this i want to give them a a vision of you know how their life can be that they've done nothing wrong that we're there to support them to pick up the pieces of their life and recreate a future so we we'd opened a pilot center in rochdale i i want this to uh, the, we we've opened a, the first center in rochdale because that's what i'm known for to help survivors of the grooming gangs but survivors of any kind of sexual abuse um a couple of them we've already got on uh, mentoring courses into training because many of them missed a lot of school they feel that there's no um there's nothing out there for them a lot of them feel very isolated you know they haven't had any compensation they don't know where to go so the i you know we want to hold their hand and let them know that they're not on their own that we will support them and whether that's therapy or education or training or just come in on a monday we opened on a monday and we would it was it was brilliant actually we were starting it was a really good atmosphere and very supportive it was the highlight of the week the girls were telling us well with the coronavirus we've had to temporarily close but we we need funding um we need um support but it's mainly you know we we've done a lot of fundraising of our own but we, and we've been given a a temporary pilot center for free we need our own premises so that we can start to do after school clubs and people want to come in and do art therapy and um lifestyle coaching and self confidence building and but if they want to therapy to help cope with the consequences of the abuse we will help with that as well but many of them actually want to put it behind them and um be helped to move forward i want them to to realize that there is a really great life for them that we will support them that they're not on their own so that's what started the foundation because you know i'm contacted all the time uh, on on everything and i have been for years with people who were very desperate mainly young women but there are a lot of young men who have got nowhere to go either um and we will grow to help men but um i can't help everybody on my own so the idea is that we would bring other volunteers in people who want to help that can do exactly what i've done for many of these kids but that we can help more um and so that's what we that's why i set up the foundation um and you know we we just we we we've got some really great volunteers now at the moment we're not paying anybody but we will get a center manager we need our own premises um and that and that's how it came into being really how many so i mean i the stories of you know if you if you watch three girls and see Holly's story or if you read your book and hear about Amber and Ruby um the stories are very compelling what do you think the numbers are how many how many girls in Rochdale do you think are um are victimized by this 
you know, when you think, um, I mean, on Operation Span, we the, the, the numbers were very limited. You know, they ring-fenced the numbers because they didn't want it to expand. But the, the, the reality was that we had in excess of two dozen children. Um, and of all those children, um, Holly was already on board. Ruby and Amber came on board. But there were no other children that were um, that their cases were taken to court with them as victims. The other the other cases just faded away. So the numbers are, are, are unknown. You, you quoted like Rotherham, um, Baroness J did her sums in Rotherham. But I can tell you that if you did the same exercise in Rochdale or in Telford or in Oxford or in Huddersfield or in Keithley, you would get the same numbers. And that is still the tip of the iceberg. This is a an epidemic. I mean, we've got coronavirus now, but this is an epidemic in the country and it is still not being addressed. So this is still happening. There's still girls in Rochdale that this is happening to. Yes, it's commonplace, you know. I mean, I'm sure in America you, you've heard a lot about Tommy Robinson, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and he talks about it. And I, what I have tried to do, um, I've tried to stay out of politics. You know, I've, I've stayed on my own, actually, because people have their own agendas and I am not a party political person. I've just told the truth and I've kept out of everybody else's um, rhetoric, if you like. You know, for me, this is about the law. It's about children. Um, it's about protecting children. Um, it, it, to me, it doesn't matter where the perpetrators come from. It doesn't matter where the children come from. For me, any child that is raped by a you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 year old man is a victim of child abuse. And the law is there to address that. And if the public can't trust the judicial services to do that, then what will happen is people will take the law into their own hands. And I don't want that to happen. I want a system that we can trust and rely on. And sadly, that is not what I see. It is not what happens. Um, but that is what we need. I mean, as a father, I like reading that with a daughter, a young daughter, um, I just can't imagine, like, if you're in a system like that, I don't know how you don't take the law into your own hands. I mean, I don't know how you could have enough self-restraint to just not go murder people. I mean, I know that sounds horrible, but, like, how do you respond if there's, if, if there's literally the people who are there in society that are supposed to be protecting you are actually hurting your daughter and not, or not caring at all? Like, I, I understand. I mean, I empathize. I'm not saying people should go do that, but I totally empathize with the desire to go take the law into your own hands because at this point, what else have you, unless they fix this, what other options do you have for justice? I, re I really don't. I really don't know, Carter, but I, I do remember, I mean, when I, when I resigned, the first, I went public and I did a file on four documentary. And after that, the, the chief constable at the time, who I had written to, who I had asked to meet, who refused to meet me, who fobbed me off. He gave an interview after the, it was a 45 minute documentary and it is on my own website is um, 
www.maggieoliver.co.uk and all these interviews are on my website. But after that programme went out, he was interviewed and not only did he say I was a woman who had become too emotionally involved and um, I was bereaved um, that, you know, not every victim gets their day in court. Um, he also said subsequently um, on another interview that um, these that these cases are difficult to prosecute, but that the public should be reassured that if these men were not going to be prosecuted for rape, that the police would disrupt their activities and take the corner shop licenses away from them. And there was universal outrage throughout the whole country that a, senior, that a chief constable in a live interview would even say that. But I can, I can guarantee that if it was his 12-year-old daughter, he would make absolutely sure that the man who got her pregnant would go to prison for rape. And I think if he and senior officers and those in positions of power were to ask themselves, you know, if this was my daughter, what would I want? I think that they would behave in the way they should behave. But for some reason, they think that it's okay to treat these children in a different way than they would expect their own. And for me, that is unacceptable and it always will be. I, I always used to ask myself or, you know, the, it's like an old fashioned saying, but I always used to say, do as you would be done by. And, and if you think that, you will do your job properly um, and anything less than that is not being is not fulfilling the oath of attestation which even those at the top took it's just that by the time they get up there they've forgotten what they said when they started and, and that that is why they have to be held legally accountable um, because I, I believe then they would make different decisions is this just a case of uh I don't want to be flippant, but is this just a case of like, yeah, bureaucracies are inefficient and horrible and like this is the way it is? Or is there something deeper that's wrong here? And why, if there's something deeper, why is it there? It's not unique, but this was not a mistake. This was a deliberate, a deliberate neglectful act. This was deliberate action in action. You know, they closed down these jobs without prosecuting the men that we knew were rapists. That is not a mistake. You know, the fact that they did not record all these rapes, that's a deliberate act. It isn't that they didn't know. They chose not to record them. And why would they choose not to record them unless it was to conceal the truth? It's a deliberate attempt to muddy the waters, to play down the magnitude of what was going on to hide the truth. That is not a mistake. That is deliberate neglect. It's misconduct in a public office. It's gross neglect of duty. And if I failed to record a criminal damage in my role as a police officer, I would lose my job. This wasn't failing to record a criminal damage. This was failing to record thousands of rapes. So it, it's unforgivable. Yeah. Um, Sorry. So, no, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so how can people, what, how, how would you recommend people get involved? You've talked about your foundation. Can you maybe tell people how to go um, follow? Where, where can they find you? Where should they go? What do you recommend for people who want to learn more? If, if you go to um, the MaggieOliverFoundation.com or buy my book on Amazon, 
I mean, I think you'll put the link. Mm-hmm. Um, follow me on, on Instagram or Twitter. Um, if you put Maggie Oliver UK, um, you would find me. Um, my own website, um, maggieoliver.co.uk. You, you know, if you put my name in on, on a search engine, um, it, it would come up. It, my, I think a really good place to start is to read my book because, you you know, your reader would get a flavour and you would it, it would take you through the process and then you could watch Three Girls after that. That would gives a really... It, that's a drama, though. It doesn't go nearly far enough and there were lots of things in there that upset me but it did a really good job of explaining grooming. Um, on my own website, there's quite a few links to documentaries, to podcasts. Um, and, and, and really, I would just ask people to, to get involved with the foundation. Um, there, there actually is a guy in America who got in touch with me last week. To, and he, when this all finishes, he's going to offer some of these young women, um, the survivors, uh, a, an adventure of a lifetime in the, in the mountains in, in America. Um, he's going to offer them a, a like a, an adventure break, um, something that That's they awesome. never would have done, which which is brilliant, you know. Um, it's just about putting a little bit back into lives that have really. It's kind of, I, I see it as a as a way of um, of helping them realise that you know there's a lot more in life than just this, and things that you would do for your own kids, you know, try and let them you know we were meant to be going to a farm at easter with with some of the girls and their children they're the kind of things that will help them see that there is there can be a future they're now surrounded by other young women who have been through the same thing they are not bad kids they are kids that have been failed and i'm just trying to do my bit to um put them back on track in a way that you know i would like every child to see that life can be great um, and they've had a, a, a bit of a rotten start where they've been, you know, let down. But I, I know that they can move through that and great future, really. Um, and we want to help them do that. So, um, trying well, to do. Maggie, uh, I like what you said about um, this is not their identity, like helping them see that this is not who they are, the things that have happened to you. Um, yeah. but yeah, well, thank you so much for your work in this and for the sacrifices that you haven't even gone into that you've made for this. And, um, yeah, I hope people check out the book. I haven't read it yet. Carter has, maybe we can make it a book club selection for unsafe space. That would be wonderful. Um, you know, I'd like people to read it, to see what the authorities are capable of. And what I think what I would like to leave your listeners with is, is is just, you know, that we all have a voice and we should use it to expose these horrific things when we see them. Um, and that is how we will change things. And I truly do believe that, that there is strength in numbers. But the first part of that is speaking the truth. Um, and that's not always easy, but we have a... Response. We all have a responsibility to speak out. I think, um, but that's never. E- it's never easy, but um, that's how we will change things. I, I believe. So. Well, I mean, I real. You know, we really admire you for 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 doing that. I mean, you you put a lot on the line, 
you you spoke out. You were the whistleblower. I can't imagine being a whistleblower in the police and having the entire police force against you, which is basically the situation that you put yourself in. Um, but you did it because you had integrity and you wanted to stay. Uh, you, you wanted to speak the truth, and uh, I think it's people like you that are going to save the world. Uh, if if it can be saved, it's going to be through actions like that. So thank you very much for joining us, Maggie. We're really really honored to have you today. Thank you so much, both of you, for, uh, for for giving me the opportunity. Thanks very much, and keep up the good work. <laughs>